fans, we are back live with another edition of the Cheap Heat Productions Wrestling Podcast. My name is Jack Kilby, Executive Vice President of Great North Wrestling. Maurice is off tonight, but I am pleased to welcome a man who has had quite a tenured career in the pro wrestling business. He was a wrestler for NWA, Jim Crockett Promotions, WCW, WWF and now runs the Texas Wrestling Academy as the head trainer. I'm, of course, talking about Mr. Rudy Gonzalez. Rudy, thanks for coming on tonight, sir. Thank you very much for having me on, Jack. How are you doing today? Just just great. I'm I'm looking forward to this to this interview, but I'd like to start off with asking uh, a question which kind of gives the fans some insight as to how you uh, became involved in the business and that was were you a fan of uh, professional wrestling uh, growing up and if so were there any particular territories or companies that that you followed so um i wasn't a fan at all of pro wrestling my dad used to watch it um growing up late night saturday nights here in san antonio um and i was in the next room doing you know playing you know games or whatever with my brothers and sisters, you know, and, and, um, my dad took me to a couple of wrestling shows, um, downtown and that were ran by Joe Blanchard and, uh, Fritz von Eric. It was called all-star wrestling. And, uh, I wasn't interested to be honest with you. I just, I just wasn't interested. My, my thing when I was growing up was football. And, um, so as, as, uh, as luck has it though, uh, my high school football coach was also the, football coach of a semi-pro football team here in San Antonio, which was called the San Antonio Toros. And one of his players was a running back named uh, Joe Benarski, mm. and, um, who later on became Ivan Putski. Mm. And another player he had was um, Frank Goodish, who later on became Bruiser Brody. And uh, he had some other players on the team that were part of the uh, local wrestling scene. And um, he's also very good friends with Joe Blanchard, who is now the promoter of his own promotion called Southwest um, Southwest Championship Wrestling. And so through my football coach, uh, I went to talk to Mr. Blanchard about training with the guys uh, in between the during the Christmas break between the semesters of 1982, 1981-82. So, you know, I got in and, and uh, I, I tell everybody the same thing. I got in, I went into the wrestling office January 2nd of 1982, and I, I haven't left yet. <laughs> that's uh, that's interesting in so much as you uh, some, somewhat uh, fell into the business. In terms of your, your training uh, process, what, what did, did that uh, entail for, for you specifically? So the training was at the Southwest Wrestling School was a lot of um, mat wrestling. The guy that was running it, his name was Larry Lane, and he was an all-Army wrestling champion. He was, uh, 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 I think he was a medalist in one of the World Games or something. I mean, he was a, he was a big-time shooter. And um, so that's what we concentrate on. Uh, and then every now and then, like Manny Fernandez and um, Tully would come into the, you know, work with us and, some of the guys and um, 
you know, uh, you just, you just kind of catch off from stuff. And, and then, um, they offered me a, a spot as a referee. And first I helped with the ring for a while. And then they offered me a spot as a referee. And, um, it was funny because, and guys don't believe it, but it, it actually happened. But like I was ref, I would referee the first two matches of the shows and, um, nobody smarted me up. So, when I was refereeing and I'd ask guys, you know, hey, you give up, you know, that type of stuff. Um, they would turn their, you know, their bodies, got see their backs. So I could hear them talking to each other. But I, 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 didn't, I didn't know what they were saying. I couldn't understand them. They, you know, for all I knew, they were saying, you know, I'm going to kick your ass or something, you know. And I'd come around, hey, what would you say? And then they'd turn their back to me again. And But what they were actually doing was calling spots. I didn't know that. And, um. No one told me finishes or anything like that. So I counted guys until their backs were on the mat for three seconds. One, two, three, and that was it. And then that was the first two matches. And then finally one day, like after a couple of months of that, um, they pulled me to the side and they said, okay, this is what's going to happen in the main event. And then this, this, and this, and you're, you're going to run in there. And then you're going to – and I was like, how do they know this? Again, I had no clue um, that wrestling was what it is. So I remember thinking that, you know, how do they know that's going to happen? What's, what do these guys know that I don't know? And then, you know, um, I guess I did well. Uh, there was a, there was a, it's on, and there's a video of it later on or on YouTube, but um, it got to where um, Brody and Abdullah the Butcher had a match in San Antonio. And um, I've been told it was Brody's call. I, I don't know. I don't, I wasn't in the room when they had that discussion, but it was Brody's call to have me go out in the middle of the match. And, uh, they did a deal with the referee. The other referee got hit. And so they need to get another referee out there to control the match. And so that's where I, that's where I come in. And that was, that was Brody's call. And, uh, someone told me later on when, you know, you know, you made it when Bruiser Brody, you know, puts you over. And I, at that time I didn't understand, but now I do. Mm-hmm. What uh, in in terms of the psychology after you were you were smartened up, uh, we we often decry today in terms of the current uh, product a, a lack of that that ring psychology, etc. How how was that uh, that process instilled in you after you had been smartened up to what the business was about? Uh, the only thing I'd really ever told you know was. Um, and it's kind of contradictory, but I mean, it, it, it makes sense at the same time is to do stuff, you know, that makes sense. Don't, don't do anything that, that may be stupid, make it make sense, make it mean something and don't insult the fans intelligence. And, um, you know, and that, 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 that can be very easily told, but it takes a lot of thought to do things that makes sense um, have an entertaining match, suspend the fans' disbelief, and at the same time don't don't make you know don't insult them. So it's not just as easy as just going out there and doing stuff. You have to put thought into you know your match. And it it you know the first few matches that I that I called on my own were horrible and I would go to the back and I would get, I wouldn't get chewed out, but I would, I would get the, um, why did you do this? 
and I explained why, you know, my what I was thinking in in the match. And he, okay, so does that make sense? You just did this, but now you're doing this. Where's the where's the logic in that? And when you think about some of the stuff, then it's like, yeah, that that, that didn't make sense. So you really have to like, um, think about what you're doing, and um, you know, like I said, make make sure that it, it, it there's a logical reason why you're doing whatever it is that you decide to do. There has you know, don't waste your time. You know, waste in motion and stuff like that all comes to play. Uh, but it had to make you know there, the stuff that we did. You know, you, you had to really think about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So after your uh, referee tenure, you you started working yourself. Do you, do you remember much about your your early uh, sort of uh, the period when you were breaking in as a wrestler? So um, and I tell my guys today the same thing. It's it's I don't know. Um, and, and, and maybe you would know this better than I, since you talked to so many people, but I don't know of many guys that actually said, all right, on September 1st, I'm having my first match because a lot of guys I came across, they started wrestling because there was a no show somewhere mm-hmm. and they needed to fill a spot. And, uh, Hey, this guy, you know, he's available, you know? And so they put someone's, you know, so-and-so in, in the ring. Uh, my story is no different. I was the rail re- I was the referee for some of the smaller shows uh, that we did, and uh, the, like I said, the first couple of matches, and then I got to where I was refereeing the whole show, but none of the big shows, like the little towns that we would do stuff like that. And then um, uh, one day somebody didn't show up for our TV show, and my job was to ring the bell. And so I was there early, had the hammer in my hand, ready to ring it. We're gonna we're doing TV. And uh, one of the wrestlers, Al Perez, comes walking up. I had been training with Al for a little bit, and, and some of the other guys also. And Al Perez says, "What size shoes do you wear?" And I said, "I wear ten and a half." He says, "What size shorts do you wear?" I said, "Medium." He goes, "Come on." And uh, I was like, "Where where are we going?" He goes, "Just come on, let's go. We got it. We don't have time. Let's go." So he takes me to the back of the in the dressing room, and there's Eric Embry, there's Jonathan Boyd, and there's Luke Williams, and they were all kind of like bookers and what have you. And and uh, so Jonathan Boyd says, "What size shoes do you wear?" I said, "I said uh, ten and a half. And he says, "What size shorts?" And I said, "Medium." And so he says, "Does anybody have a pair of boots Rudy can wear?" And I'm like, "Well, what what do you mean boots Rudy can wear? What?" Do you... And Eric Embry gave me a pair of extra boots he had, and then Bobby Fulton gave me a uh, extra pair of wrestling trunks he had, and they said, "Go put this on. You don't have much time. Hurry up." So I was like, "Holy shit!" So I changed, put that, put whatever, whatever they gave me. I put it on, and as soon as I had it on, all right, you're next. And I, I had no time to think about it. I had no time to, you know, all I didn't even know what the finish was. Um, and uh, so me and a guy named Manny Villalobos went out and wrestled the New Zealand sheep herders who at the time were like, they were like bad dudes mm. and they weren't like the bushwhackers you see on, you saw on TV. They were, they were bad dudes. And um, by this time I already knew wrestling was whatever it was, but even still, you know, I saw Luke, you know, and, and Butch um, beat up some guys along the, along the way as a referee. So I'm like, man, what am I, what you know, what I just get myself into. So they, we do the match and they put all the, they put all the boots and what have you on Manny, on my partner. And uh, again, I had no clue what I was doing. So 
I just hear Luke Williams say, tag Rudy, tag Rudy. So Manny, you know, crawls and tags me and I jump in. And then uh, by this time, the crowd is, they're, you know, they're going, they're going nuts. The volume was just, you know, we were in a, like a small venue when there's about 300 people there and it was loud. So Luke is telling me kind of like the, the voice I'm using now, you know, punch me, punch me. And then, you know, uh, punch me again and clothesline me. And then I hear Butch Miller running. I see him in the corner of my running in the ring and he's saying the same thing, punch me, clothesline me, you know, and, and that's what I do. And then, um, uh, they cut me off and then I hear somebody say tagging Manny. So I, you know, I, I, I kind of knew what I was, you know, uh, knew about the selling part stuff. So I kind of staggered to the ropes, tagging the other guy. He comes in, they do the double knee thing, whatever they, they did for finish and they pin him, and that was it. And that match was probably five or six minutes, but it, it felt sometimes it, you know, when I look back, it felt like an hour. Sometimes when I look back, it feels like it was a minute long. It was just, you know, everything happened so fast. And then um, when I went to the back, uh, Jonathan Boyd said, you did good. He says, keep training with these guys. Um, uh, you need to get your own stuff, though. You need to get your own gear, get your own boots and what have you. He goes, once you have your own stuff, then we can book you more often. There I was. That's awesome. You you were in, uh, you know, a, a golden age of uh, wrestling in Texas. And you, you've already mentioned some some notable names, but. Do you, do you have any uh, personalities that that you encountered, uh, you know, aside from Brody, the obvious, um, that that stand out during your your sort of embryonic stage in the business? There, I I tell everybody the same thing. I was I was blessed to come into the business when I did. Uh, the first match that I saw, uh, apart from my my dad, actually the match that hooked me into the wrestling business was between Tully Blanchard and Wahoo McDaniel. Um, one of the guys that caught my attention doing promos and, and making crowds react and, and pissing people off and stuff was Eddie Mansfield. Mm-hmm. And then there was Gino Hernandez and then there was Dick Slater and then there was Tiger Conway Jr. And then there was, uh, Al Perez. Then the Guerreros came around, Chavo, Hector, Mondo. Uh, I mean, I, I, and Eric Embry and, uh, Ken Timms were a tag team. Um, Ken Lucas came into came into the area with a, a young Ricky Morton. Um, I mean, Hercules. Uh, not, well, he wasn't Hercules Hernandez then. Ray Fernandez later on became Hercules Hernandez. Um, the Honky Tonk Man was down here as Wayne uh, Ferris. There you go. Yeah, his name just slipped my Wayne Ferris. He was out down here before he was a Honky Tonk Man. I mean, there's. The Hacksaw Dungan was down here. I mean, there was a bruiser. Um, I'm sorry, Buck Robley was down here. Uh, I mean, and at that time, all those guys were just, they're just guys to me. But as the years went by and I realized who I was around, I was like, holy cow. You know, I was, not many people can say they were around as many uh, studs as I was when I first broke in. And everyone that had something to say to me, was a learning experience. Everyone. I mean, there was, I, you know, I, I run my school now and I tell my guys, no one ever took advantage of me. No one ever tried to bully me. No one ever tried to push me around. As a matter of fact, a lot of those guys, either they didn't mess with me at all, which was very few, but the ones that did tried to help me. Mm-hmm. And uh, it wasn't something I asked for. I didn't tell guys to help me. They just, I'd come into the dressing room and somebody would say, hey, kid, 
uh, Bill Howard, hey, kids, slow down, you know, and um, I didn't know what he meant by that. So I'd go ask him, what do you mean, what do you mean slow down? And then he'd go into a lecture of taking your time, doing stuff, making stuff, making things mean something, um, or, or, or maybe, you know, I'd come to the back and someone would say, um, you got to react with the crowd, work with the crowd. And I'm like, what do you mean by that? And then they'd go into a lecture about working the crowd and, uh, communicating with them and, and using, you know, which I use today, uh, using, um, relationships with your spouse, your girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever, as an example of uh, communicating, you know, with the people outside and that type of stuff. So, I mean, I came in at a time, like you said, it was a golden age and uh, we had Terry Taylor, or I'm sorry, Terry, Terry Allen down here in his, in his beginning days who later on became Magnum TA. I mean, I, I, I came in at a, at a great time. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it didn't last very long because, you know, things started changing at that same, I came in and, um, I, I kind of fit in. It's just that I was very green with the, with the rest of the talent. But then um, WWF came in. <laughs> and then we have John Studd, who's like 6'6". And we have Lex Luger and Hogan, Hulk Hogan, King Kong Bundy, and all these 6'6 guys and 300-pounders. And I, I couldn't fit in. I, I, I couldn't even, you know, I mean, I was just way too small. Mm-hmm. Uh, a fan on social media wanted me to ask about uh, a legendary figure in uh, Texas wrestling, although, you know, he worked all over, including Australia. Did you have any uh, interactions or encounters with Playboy Gary Hart? Gary, um, so I did. So Gary was part of the world-class group, was out of Dallas. And um, so um, April of 85, Joe Blanchard sold um, the company to a guy, another another guy named Fred Barron, and Gary Hart was came in as as the booker, and um, Gary was a smart man. The only thing I, the only uh, problem I may have had with him um, was he brought in a guy named the American Ninja, and uh, he was putting him over as this unbeatable machine guy and so you know he asked a couple of guys in the dressing room do you want to work with ninja do you want to work with ninja and everybody said no 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 because the guy apparently was a legitimate badass i mean he really was a he really knew his he was a karate guy and he really knew his stuff so gary asked me he goes would you mind working with this kid and uh he goes um he's gonna take we're gonna take you out on a stretcher but i promise you brother you come back we're gonna make you a star and so I figured that's how you do it. You, you got to, you know, do it the promoter, booker, booker, or whoever asks. And, um, you know, after a while, they'll put you over. So um, I said, sure, no problem. And um, so we did a thing. It's on YouTube. So we did a thing where uh, I did a couple of moves to him. And then he gives me the old karate chop right at the throat. Boom, I fall down like a sack of potatoes. They get the ambulance out there. I get carted out. And um, so he tells me, you need to be out for a month. He goes, stay home. If you have to go get groceries, you know, send somebody, a friend or somebody, but don't let anybody see you out in public. It was like, I think it was like 85 or so. I said, all right, no problem. So I did that. And then about three weeks later, he calls me and he says, I'm going to send so-and-so over with, to your apartment. You're going to wear a neck brace. Anytime you go anywhere, you got to wear that neck brace. <laughs> 
I said, okay. So sure enough, a you know, guy showed up, put a neck brace on, went to the grocery store, went to the mall, went to wherever, go eat. And I had this neck brace on. And so I had to like, you know, do this deal and stuff. And um, so then a couple of weeks of that, and then he called me and says, we need you in Austin, Texas. And I said, all right, here's my break. Here I am, big time. So call time was like 6 o'clock or so. I showed up at 4 o'clock. I was ready to go. And um, so he pulls me and, and, and Brody, Bruiser Brody again. He pulls, me, he pulls us to the side. And he says, Frank, you're going to do this, this, and this. And you're going to da-da-da. And then they're going to pull the stretcher out. And they're going to take him out. And then Brody says, didn't, didn't we just t- stretcher this kid out last month? And Gary Hart was like, yeah, brother, don't worry about it. And so Brody was like, um, that's not right, though. And Gary, you know, Gary said, don't worry about it. We got it taken care of. And I'm thinking to myself, this ain't no superstardom stuff. This isn't. So, but I let, you know, I, I listened to the conversation. And um, so, so finally, finally Brody told Gary, you know what? I'll take care of it. Don't worry. I, I, I know what you want. I'll take care of it. So we did the match. It's on YouTube. Brody kills me. And um, the ref, you know, he's, he, he keeps stopping, stopping, doing whatever he's doing. Until the referee finally disqualifies Bruiser Brody, so I get my hand raised, and then that enrages him more. So, and then he just puts the boots to me again, beats me, beats me, beats me, and then they call the ambulance, and I get carted out. So, I have a win over Bruiser Brody, <laughs> I get, but you know, it was that was, and then after that, I was kind of like, you know, I, I, and I know a lot of guys um, put Gary over. And I do too. Smart dude. I just that one experience gave me a bad taste in my mouth, and I just uh, I didn't really want to work with him anymore. I worked for the company a little bit longer until I had some issues with the promoter, and then I just walked away. Mm-hmm. So, how did you uh, first uh, get uh, to be uh, get in the mix for uh, Jim Crockett Promotions, the NWA, get to get those bookings? <clears throat> I'm sorry. So, um, when Joe Blanchard sold the company, I was very close to him. He was, he was, I always went to Joe for advice. I would sit in his office and we talk and whatever. And then when he sold the company, uh, I, I went to go work for world class and I didn't want to, I didn't because world class at the time was our competitor, mm. but I still kept a relationship with Joe Blanchard and, uh, went to his house and visited whenever, him and his wife would go see Tully, who was living in the Carolinas. Uh, whenever, whenever they'd go visit, I would watch the house for him. Um, uh, I loved him to death. He was a, he always took care of me. And um, so Joe ended up getting a job with Crockett Promotions. And he was what they call an events coordinator, which the show in his, his, his territory was everything west of the Mississippi. So he had, we had a show in Phoenix, Arizona. Joe had to get there early, make sure tickets were sold and, and newspaper ads and radio and all this stuff. Uh, and so since he was going to these towns, they gave him a ring to carry with, you know, he'd, he'd get a U-Haul or a rider truck, or whatever, and take the ring also. And then um, he would have to set it up. And Joe was, he had a bad hip. He was older. He was, and I'm not knocking him at all. He was just an older man now. And um, sometimes he could get ring help. Sometimes he couldn't. 
Uh, I think he had a couple of guys help him, and uh, it didn't work out. So one day he calls me, and he says, are you busy next week? And I said, uh, no, I'm not. You need anything? He goes, can you help me? Can you help me put the ring up in Tahlequah, Oklahoma? And I said, sure. He goes, they'll pay you well. He goes, I'll make sure you're taken care of. I just need help with the ring. I said, all right. So uh, we met up. We drove to Tahlequah, Oklahoma. Um, and it wasn't, I, I wasn't kissing anybody's ass. I just had a lot of respect for the man. So we got in a truck and I'm like, I'll take care of this. I'll, so I put the ring up by myself. <clears throat> and, um, so we did that and came home. We left. So the show was on a Saturday. We left Friday morning, did the show Saturday, got a hotel, did a show Saturday, and then went back to the hotel. And then we were home Sunday. Um, so I got paid the travel time. I got paid. Uh, I got paid, you know, so much money for each day where I was on the road, and I got a per diem, and I got paid for putting the ring up. And so, um, and I'm not talking about fifty, sixty dollars. I mean, they they were paying very well. So we got home, and uh, Joe said they'll send you a check in a, in a week or so. I got my check, and I was like, holy cow. I said, they make a mistake. This is a lot of money. And he says, no, they'll take, I told you I'll take care of you. He goes, do you want the job or not? And I said, sure. So every show after that, Phoenix, El Paso, Bakersfield, Las Vegas, wherever, anything west of the Mississippi, I was on the ring crew. I was a ring crew. And then so we'd get to the, whatever the venue, and then Joe would go to the radio stations or TV station, whatever, and do what he had to do. But I would sit the ring up. And that's how it was. And then finally, um, uh, Kevin Sullivan asked me, because he had worked a couple of shows for Joe Blanchard. So Kevin Sullivan asked me if I wanted to referee. And I said, sure. So he said, all right, next trip, bring your referee outfit, uh, your referee gear with you. So I did. Uh, and then after a little bit of that, somebody didn't show up. And so, you know, and I always, the old rule is always bring your wrestling gear with you. So, um, Somebody did. There was a no show, so someone said, "You know, you got your gear." And I said, "Yes." So I, I, I was doing the ring for for Crockett. I was doing the. I refereed on occasion, and I wrestled on occasion. And uh, I'm, you know, I'm 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 not patting myself on the back. I'm just saying. I'm just repeating what I what I was always told was I was dependable. I did what was asked. I never complained about. It. I felt from day one. I've always felt grateful to be part of the wrestling business. So when it, even when things went bad, I wasn't. It, I never complained about stuff. wasn't going to get anything solved. So I just went. You know, I, I learned to roll with the punches and just do what was asked and work. You know, do my best and um, and uh, work hard and and just you know be a company guy. And uh, so there I was. I'm not sure what happened, but um, I think I think. There was a money issue somewhere, or I'm not sure. But Joe, Joe finally called me after a couple of years of doing this. Joe called me and says I got released, and so I'm like, "Shit, what, is, what does that leave me?" You know, and I asked him, I said, "Well, where am where am I?" And he says, "You might want to call." He says, "You might want to call Jody Hamilton, who was in charge of the ring stuff and all that, whatever." He goes, "And he'll he'll uh he'll tell you where where what to do next." So I called Jody up and I'm like, hey, Mr. Blanchard just told me he got released. And Jody's like, yeah, you know, you know got to, 
watch our money and you know it was a it was a financial issue and i said where does that leave me he says well unfortunately you know you guys you know it's gonna cost a little bit of money but as soon as things he said as soon as we get back on our feet and we start making we're back in the money again or, or whatever you know we're gonna call you everybody here likes you we're gonna call you i said all right i'm still waiting for that call but <laughs> but i mean it was what it was I, it was three years two years or so I've got to, uh, there was a no-show in El Paso, Texas, and um, I got to work with Luger for the NWA world title. Um, there was a big pay-per-view in Phoenix, Wrestle War, that was 91, I believe. Um, the local Spanish station sponsored a match, and so they paid for it. So it was me, uh, a guy named Ultraman, I believe, and um, against... Eddie Guerrero and a guy named El Wichel. And I think El Wichel later on became Damien 666. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. But um, I had a good time working for him. I, they paid me well and I traveled and, and uh, you know, I saw the beginning of Oz and then he was gone. <laughs> uh, I mean, I had a great time working for the company. I was there when, um, when it went from Crockett Promotions to WCW. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I had a good time. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to bring up a, a couple of those, uh, a couple of those names. You, you seem to, uh, you know, the company appeared to have, you know, significant faith in you. In addition to uh, Eddie and uh, Luger, uh, I, you work Larry Zabisco and and uh, you know quite a few of the, you know, workers workers of of the time or any time. But in in terms of that title shot at the Great American Bash against Luger. How, how did that uh, particular situation come together? So what happened was um, this was towards the end. This um, maybe we can research this more better than I, I can't than I can pull up off the top of my head. But there was a problem with no shows. Guys were getting contracts, and but they weren't making the towns. Guys were under guaranteed contracts and they weren't making the towns. So I know we did a show somewhere and two guys didn't show up. And so I got put in a tag match, me and Ricky Morton with somebody and uh, with another team. And, and so then we did El Paso and um, Grizzly Smith walks in. He says, you have your gear with you? And I said, yes. And he walks back out of the dressing room and, um, he asked somebody else, you know, hey, do you mind working Luger or whatever? And and they said, well, I'm working with this guy. And then he asked somebody else, you mind, you want to work with Luger? And I'm working with this guy. And so um, Grizzly comes up and he goes, do you mind working with Luger? And I was just, you know, I think to myself, does he really ask me this? You know, because at the time, Lex Luger was the NWA world champion. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, uh, sure, you know, I don't mind. He goes, great, get your stuff on. And um, so I know, if I remember correctly, I know there was an issue. Luger didn't want to, he didn't want to do the match. Um, I know him and Grizzly had an argument about it. And then so finally he walks in the dressing room and says, what do you want to do? And I'm like, I don't care. I don't, again, I, and, and this is my, this is my attitude even today, even doing this right now. I'm so grateful to be in this business. I'm so happy that I've been part of it. And, and for, for uh, Grizzly to ask me that, 
And I know he asked me because nobody else was, you know, there was nobody else. I was like the, I was the, the you know, you hear that. Even if you were the last man on earth, I wouldn't marry you. You know, I was, well, I was the last man on earth. And uh, so, and, and Luger wasn't happy about it. And he's asked me, what do you want to do? And I was like, I don't care, man. I don't, you know, I'm getting paid the same whether, you know. But also at the same time, at, the, at that time, I didn't do the flips and dives and all that stuff. So, um he says, "All right." So we we went out there and had like a five minute. It wasn't a long. It wasn't a long match at all. It was a quick match, and um, that was it. Joe Blanchard d- joked around. He goes, "How'd you do that?" And I'm like, "I don't know." You know, we we're coming back home, and he's like, "How in the world did you manage that, man?" I said, "I have no idea." He goes, "What I would have done was take him down and not let him up, and then take the belt." And I was like, "Yeah." And he says, "You wouldn't have made it to the dressing room, but that would have. That's what I would have done." And I'm like, "I would. I don't. I would. Then it never even crossed my mind." Cool. So uh, I mentioned Eddie Guerrero all, already, but who would you um, boil down to your, if if you could pick a favorite WCW NWA opponent, who, who would that be and why? At <sighs> all, any, anyone on the roster? That, that you faced, yeah. That I already faced, or that I'd like to face. That that you did face, and then we can do a part B as a like to for sure. Yeah, by by all means, Eddie Guerrero. I mean, at, you know, at at that time uh, when we did that match in Phoenix, it, all they told us to go out there to do was just go out there have a good match. And so my mind thought, my mindset was just don't screw anything up. Just you know, Eddie was you know even at back then he was a, a better performer than all four, all three of us. So let him do what he wants to do and stuff. But, you know, um, I, didn't, I didn't make any attempt to try and outshine him or outwork him. I just wanted to keep everything, you know, simple. Um, but if we could run it again, oh, by all means, I'd love to work with him again and and, uh, and see how that works out. I'm not saying I'm going to outwork the guy, but, you know, uh, I think we'd have a very good match. Mm-hmm. And that, and that, let me take this. Let me add this in. And that's him at that time, and me at that time in my prime, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. You know, now I'm I'm old, and you know, uh, take it easy, brother. That type of stuff. <laughs> um, but back then, if I if if they would have if we would have had a match like a week or so later, it would have been a far better match. Mm-hmm. In terms of this uh, this time frame. You started in 91 to do some work for uh, WWF syndicated television. How did that transition take place for you? So um, there was a guy here named Dusty Wolf, and he worked pretty regular for, for WWF at that time. And I'm not sure what happened, but he made, he made a phone call and said, you know, do you mind going to Indianapolis next week or whatever? You know, in two weeks or whatever. And I said, sure. I said, how are we going? He says, they're flying us in. Uh, just got to worry about food. But they got catering. But, you know, they're going to cover our hotel and they're flying us in. And I said, sure. And I went in there and, you know, I was the enhancement guy. Um, I I did what I was told to do. Again, just did what I told was told to do. I didn't try and, you know, I wasn't trying to be a smart ass with anybody. And, um uh, the next time that 
you know, the, the opportunities came around. He called me again. He says, can you, do you want to do the next, the next loop or whatever? And I said, sure. And I, I did that for three years. It's just, you know, it got to where, uh, one of the, one of the, one of the first matches, I think it might've been the first match that Sean had after he switched on Marty was Mm -hmm. with me was, uh, and Sean just said, you know, come on, let's go. And I'm like, where are we going? He said, um, you work with me. And I'm like, what do you want to do? And he's like, I don't know. I just need for you to sell. And so it was, uh, you know, if you watch the match, I think he did like four or five things. Bam, hit me, went off to the side, and he did his thing with Sherry, fixed his hair or whatever. And then, you know, when the time was right, he came back and got me. And, and there was timing on both sides. And so after the match, there, you know, Sean told me I did a great job and thank you and all this. And, and, uh, and then after that, you know, um, I remember going, showing up to the arena and, uh, Randy, not Randy Savage, um, Scott Hall, the first, as soon as I walked in the door, Scott Hall grabbed me and says, you're coming with me. And I'm like, what did I do? He goes, come on, bro. You're coming with me. So, and he, he told, um, I think it was Tony Correa. He goes, I've got, I've got Rudy. And when you get to where guys, cause I saw a lot of guys when I was doing the enhancement stuff that they would tell somebody you're working with this guy and they'd be like, ah, you know? Um, but when you have guys that are requesting to work with you and you know, that's, that's a feather in your cap. And, and again, back then I didn't realize it, but now when I look back and it's like, Holy cow, I, I worked with Virgil. I had like a little match with Virgil, um, Yokozuna. I came to the back and guys were like, you okay? Cause he did the, the where he sat down on my chest. You know, I, yeah. There we go. Yeah. Guys, are you okay? That looks stiff. Are you all right, bro? And I'm like, I'm fine. You know, so the fact that I got called back so many times um, told me that you know, I was doing something right. And so to this day, man, I, I whenever I get a chance, man, I, I thank Dusty Wolf for, for making that call for me and for bringing me up, you know. Um, again, more than grateful for the opportunity. Yeah, we, we had the, the pleasure of uh, interviewing uh, Dusty on, on this channel. Excellent, excellent uh, discussion. Before uh, we delve in a, a little bit uh, greater detail, granular detail with some of your matches, wanted to, to ask you, this This comes up all the time and uh, even more so, unfortunately, in uh, recent days, but just if you had any notable interactions with uh, Mr. McMahon. <laughs> not talk like about, that <laughs> talk about getting put on the spot you know um i don't know what happened i don't know anything about that stuff i'm just like everybody else reading the dirt sheets and whatever and and um um i got called to do by bruce pritchard to do a deal with uh, jbl to build up the eddie guerrero thing <clears throat> And so we went out in the field and did this uh, vignette, whatever they call it. And and um, the first time they showed it, I believe, was in San Antonio. And I had brought in some guys to do enhancement work and stuff. And so they were they were in the ring, and I'm sitting there in one of the chairs by the by the ramp. And um, uh, I look at the corner of my eye, and he's walking down the ramp. And up to this point, I had never talked to him. I never communicated with him. I never, nothing. 
he'd, we'd walk in the corridor. I'd put my head down. Never had any kind of interaction with Vince McMahon. And um, so I could hear him walking down the ramp. And then and then he stops. And he's like right next to me. And he, puts his, he puts his hand on my shoulder. And he said, Rudy, like what job you did. Uh, he said something like, I appreciate it. It's really going to help the storyline. Um, he said it's really going to help further the, the storyline. Uh, thank you very much. And he walked off. He didn't have to do that he, at all. You know, I got paid well for that also, but he didn't have to do that. And so it kind of like let the, thump, the, 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 the lump in my throat, you know, I felt like I did something, you know. And then as time went, you know, months or whatever, and I saw the storyline, you know, uh, transform and, and, and progress and what have you. And again, looking back now, that was a big deal in the, in that, in that, you know, JBL and Eddie Guerrero's story deal. That was, that was a big deal. And that, and today guys are like, you can't do that today because of political correctness and all that stuff. Um, so it, which makes that segment even bigger because of how it was put together at, you know, JBL, guarding the border and I'm coming in as an illegal alien and, you know, whatever. And, and, uh, I've always thought maybe if I threw the idea out there that, Hey, here's the illegal alien guy. Now he's a wrestler, you know, and bring him back, you know, you know, but we, I never, I never threw it out there, but I mean, um, <clears throat> I, you know, I don't have any, you know, I'm just sitting back like everybody else reading the dirt sheets, you know, uh, is it, you know, but, but with me, and I judge everybody how I'm treated, how they treat me. So with me, I mean, I, I, I he didn't have to do, he didn't have to thank me the way he did. Yeah, and that that seems to be the consensus of uh, you know individuals that that worked, uh, did work for the WWF around that time, or or basically any time that uh, McMahon was very uh, respectful to the guys coming in doing enhancement work and whatnot. So, yeah, I, th- I think that's, uh, that speaks for, um, professionalism in, in that respect anyway. Right. One wanted to ask you about, um, Yokozuna though, your, your match with him, he, we, we've spoken to some other folks that had very negative experiences with him in the ring being very rough, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I take it, because you took the finish there and you didn't break any ribs or anything that you did not have that experience? No, not at all. You know what? Um, <clears throat> and again, it's just, I, I learned to, to look back and realize that I don't have to, I didn't have to be in this business. <clears throat> so I've always had great appreciation for being part of like this, this everything, whatever, whatever I've taken part in, I've always greatly appreciated the opportunity. Um, and I've, I've never tried to main event nobody. I've never tried to give attitude to anybody. I've never tried to portray myself as being bigger than the wrestling business. And I think that, I think guys saw that because Bruiser Brody was another guy. If he didn't like you, mm. he would boot your head off. If he, if, I mean, there were, there were a lot of guys that I worked with that guys would tell me, watch out, man, he's going to mess you up. And I never had nothing, you know, bro. Um, I, I, I can't really say that I felt even when Yokozuna, what did he weigh? Like 500 pounds or something? Yes. North of 500 pounds. Yeah. I, I, I didn't know. I mean, he, he, 
he did the the drop thing and and um you know i don't want to expose too much but you know i didn't feel 500 pounds it could have been could have been you drop, dropping on me it wasn't you know but again like you said i i've heard guys say man uh he cracked so-and-so's ribs or he did this to this guy or he did that you know bam bam biglow did did his his uh uh, was a big one of the guys one of the bigger guys did a the 450 i mean not the 450 the the big splash mm-hmm. didn't, feel, didn't feel a thing i've never been i can honestly say and i'm not trying to put myself over in any way I'm, I, I can honestly say that i've never been stiffed by anybody to where they've tried to hurt me because i've been an asshole to anybody and you know and then i go to the back and hey thank you very much thank you brother Next time, be safe, whatever, whatever, and we go on our way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think when when stuff like that happens to guys, there's a reason for it, you know. Um, the match I had with Brody was as with the guy named Bill Rathke. and so they told us it was a two on one, and Bill said, "Well, you know, we pissed somebody off," and I'm thinking, "Why would you say that?" And we went out there, and, and you, it's on YouTube. <clears throat> Brody booted Bill in the face. I mean, he beat him up. And then when I come in the ring, I'm like, oh, shit, here we go. And so I barely felt anything. I didn't, you know, uh, I'm not saying it was like, you know, like uh, like cotton or anything like that. But, I mean, he put, I'm with Bruiser Brody, so it has to be a little on the on the, on the, on the stiff side. Um, and then when we go to the back and, and this guy Bill is like, did he beat your ass like he beat mine? I was like, no, I'm fine, I'm, you know. And, and Brody would come to the back and shake my hand. Thank you, brother. And then he'd walk the other way, and, and this guy got nothing, you know. So I think it's all in the way you treated guys, and and then you gained their respect. And, uh, you know, I mean, you don't got to barbecue with guys and stuff like that, but just, you know, treat each other, you know. And I know some guys have that that, that ego and whatever, um, and that's fine. You can have your ego all you want. I just I'm just going out there trying to earn a dollar. That's all. Yeah, respect. Did you uh, have either in Texas or uh, the the Federation any encounters with uh, the Dingo slash Ultimate Warrior? I, I shared a dressing room with them, but that's about it. I never had to. I never had. I'm trying to think. I've never had a match with them though. Um, but I mean, uh, you know, he was he was wired. He was, um, like 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 we say, he was on. Uh, whether it was on chemicals or not, I have no idea. But he was always intense. You know, he was always what you saw on uh, on TV is what you know. I mean, every time I saw him, he was that's what you saw on TV is what you saw in the dressing room. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In fact, when I went when I worked with uh, the the with WBF, I believe he even had his own bus. He had his own mm-hmm. traveling bus, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, quite a quite a polarizing figure to be uh, to be blunt. In in terms of uh, the the recent attention on uh, world class and the the Von Erich movie, I, I don't know whether you you checked that out, but you certainly have intimate knowledge of of uh, the territory and the personalities in it. I, I would assume. Did, did you happen to see the Iron Claw or uh, have any um, interpretation of it? My son wants to go see it. I don't want to go see it. Mm-hmm. And the reason is, um, 
I didn't know David. Um, I met Carrie. Carrie was a hell of a guy. He was a nice, nice, nice guy. Mike was a good dude. Um, Kevin was a little on the cocky side. Um, you know, and that's, and that's fine. I mean, it's the Von Eric's like gods down here. Mm. Um, but I, when I worked, when I left Joe Blanchard's promotion and went, you know, I went to go work for world-class wrestling and, um, uh, they always treated me well. I mean, I don't have anything negative to say with them about them. <clears throat> was there, was there drug use? Yes. But in the eighties, that was everywhere. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, I have, Today I have good memories of the boys, and uh, like so, I, I haven't seen it, but someone told me like um, Mike's portrayal is, you know, after his toxic shock syndrome episode, um, uh, he was he wasn't the same mentally, and I don't may I don't remember. I mean, I know I saw them. I know I saw him a little while after he started wrestling against stuff. And I don't remember, again, I'm older, so maybe I'm missing something, but I don't remember being him. I don't remember him being uh, not able to speak and stuff like that, you know, uh, slurring his words and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, I, you know, and I I don't want to see it. I don't, I like Kevin. I like Mike. I like Carrie. Carrie was like, um, it's a good dude. Mm -hmm. Um, The family is what it was. You know, I don't know. I've, I've heard how they they're portraying it and um i mean that could have been the that could have been the mannings with archie and peyton and eli i mean you know mm-hmm. you know uh, and i guess i guess what i'm getting at is every dad wants to their son to be the best player the best actor the best whatever and they're going to push him especially if you're in like i guess i guess what they're saying is fritz didn't get to um uh live his you know get what everything he wanted out of wrestling so he's taken out he was taking it out on the, on the boys and again that <clears throat> i coached little league football and i saw a lot of dads you know you know telling me my son should be a quarterback when their, their kid has no business being a quarterback but they want them to be a quarterback because they want that kid they want their son to be the the te- the, the hero of the team and and probably in the past the dad you know screwed up somewhere and um you know, so I can see it happening and I don't fault them for it. You know, it's, it's, um, you know, I, I think the whole Von <clears throat> situation was sad. Um, but I have some good memories and I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't, you know, and there's probably stuff that I don't know. I don't want to see a movie that's going to reveal things, you know, I just rather stick with what I have. Mm-hmm. So like I said, my son's like, dad, but you knew those guys, you knew that. Yeah. But I don't want to see it, Steve. And he's like, well, I want to see it. I want. I don't want to see it. You know, <clears throat> I'll probably break and go with them. You know, or maybe I'll catch it on Netflix or something. But it's not. It's not on my to do list right now. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it. I saw it in December, and it's certainly very, very well acted, but but not uplifting. And you know, someone who knows uh, world class backwards and forwards will find lots of gaps in the. Uh, in the whole, uh, you know, story because it was only, you know, a couple hours, whatever. Uh, Jeremy Allen White, who played uh, Carrie, excellent actor, but I just couldn't get over how small he was considering how, how small he is considering how big Carrie Von Eric was. So there was and, s- and some that, difficulty. 
And that's one of the things is Kerry wasn't just a big man. He was larger than life. I mean, <clears throat> Kerry was a rock star. I mean, he was, and and I and seeing the pictures, and I don't know who the actor's name, but seeing the pictures, it's like, this is Kerry Von Eric. And I'm like, no, it's not. You know, I mean, um, Kerry was larger than life. All the boys were, but Kerry especially. Can you talk about, and, and I know you, you did some some work, uh, Independence, and then you did a couple of uh, shots with uh, Ring of Honor and uh, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I want to get your uh, feelings on the, the issue of the business moving away from enhancement talents and, and whether or not there should be some recognition thereof in terms of the you know, crucial role that they played during, you know, one of the most, uh, you know, successful periods in, in the business. We're talking 80s, 90s, uh, et cetera. Man, without the enhancement talent, um, some of those stars wouldn't be stars. Uh, there should be some kind of recognition for those guys, um, you know, but it is what it is. Um, I think getting away from using enhancement talent um, meant you got to put your stars against each other on TV. And sometimes that's just not a good idea. You're giving away matches for free that you could be putting them at the arena somewhere. But I mean, I, that's, that's the way the business went. You know, that's the direction the business went to. So, I mean, who am I to, to question, you know, doing that? I mean, I run a promotion also and I do a hundred people, 125, Meanwhile, the people that are making those decisions, they're in arenas and stadiums with 14,000, 16,000, 20,000. They do WrestleMania, 100,000 people. So who am I to question that? Mm. You know? So, I mean, I just sit back and I watch how things play out. And if I can participate, great. If if there's no room for me, that's fine, too. Um, I'll, I'll try and find a way to be part of whatever it is that's going on. Can you... Uh talk about how you came to uh, the Texas Wrestling uh, Association Academy and how you came to be the head trainer and some of the, the work that you're currently doing down there. So um, I just told a story the other day. Um, in October, November of 98, I did a show in Laredo, Texas. And um, – and this, and this is just regular independent wrestling story, uh, story. It's I did a show. I got screwed around on the money part. I had already spent um, 15 years or so in the business. And I, I wasn't happy with my pay. So I had my envelope, walked out the door with my bags. I still had my wrestling gear on. Gave it to the, the booker who was Jose Lothario. Gave the money and he said, "What is this?" I said, "That's my money. I don't want it." And I walked out. I quit wrestling. I quit the business. Done. And that was a Saturday night. Monday, I went to go get a job at a warehouse here in San Antonio. And uh, Tuesday, I got hired, and uh, I had to go take a drug test. So I took one, uh, Wednesday. I went to go take my drug test. I come home, and I get a phone call. This is in um, October, November of '98. And uh, so, um, you know, I asked the phone and I said, hello. And they're like, 
uh, speak to Rudy Gonzalez. I said, this is Rudy. And he says, Rudy, this is Sean. And I said, Sean who? Is it Sean Michaels? And I'm like, who is this? This Sean. And um, the group of guys I hung around with at that time, I could have swore it was one of them playing a rib. So I said, F you. But hung up. And uh, phone rings again. Uh, hello? Rudy, yes. This is Sean. Sean who? Sean Michaels. F you. Click. This happened three times. This happened four times. And uh, finally, I phone rings. He says, Rudy. I'm like, yes. And he was like, don't hang up. And I'm like, well, who is this? He says, this is Sean. I said, all right, what do you want? He says, um, are you going to be at Jose's show Friday? And so there I knew I knew it was a rib. I knew they were just trying to get me to go to the show to try and get me to work. I said, nope, done wrestling. And he says, uh, can you meet me there? And I said, no, I'm not wrestling. He said, I'm not asking you to wrestle. I want to meet you at, at, at Jose's show. I want to meet you Friday. And um, I said, what time? He says, be there by 8. Magic started at 8 o'clock. He says, be there by 8. I said, all right, we'll see. So Friday comes around, 8 o'clock, I show up. Jose's at the front door, and he's like, ah, what do you want? And I said, I'm. Uh, he goes, oh, you came to wrestle? I said, nope, didn't come to wrestle. He says, what do you want? I said, I came to meet Sean. He says, for what? I said, I don't know. I came to meet Sean Michaels. And so he said, oh, uh, mm-hmm. you can sit over there. So I went to the, where the the fans were sitting. I sat in the back row, and the match just started. And um, first match goes on, second match goes on, no Sean. It's like 8.15 now. And I'm like, man, I got. I know I got ribbed, son of a gun. So I'm trying to figure out a way to get out of the place without being seen, without looking like an idiot. And uh, <clears throat> all of a sudden, the whole, there's maybe 100 people there, 75 people. Everybody just, and then runs to the door. And um, so I look over there, and I see all these fans or whatever. And then I see Sean standing over him. And I'm like, holy cow. He really is here. So this crowd, whatever, they go behind me and Sean goes to the dressing room. Everybody grabs their seats. And I'm like, okay, well, he didn't say anything to me. So, you know, I'm getting to walk up. And then Sean stands next to me. He's like, wait right here. I'll be right back. So he goes and talks to Jose or whatever. And he comes and sits next to me. And he, and he just told me, he says, uh, I'm, I'm going to do back surgery in a couple of weeks or i think he might have said a couple of months um I'm a, but i'm in the meantime i'm gonna be out so i want to start a wrestling school and i said all right that's cool he goes i want you to be one of the trainers and um i said uh all right when is this gonna start he said in april so we're like in we're in like in november of 98 and so he's talking about you know four months five months later so I'm like, okay. I had just got a job at a at a warehouse, and I was making like twelve, thirteen, fourteen dollars an hour, and I was working, you know, six, fifty hours a week. So I was making pretty good money. And uh, finally, I was at the point in my life because I'd been in the wrestling business since I was eighteen. So finally, I was on the point of my, at, at the point of my life where I was making a weekly check, had benefits, you know, mm-hmm. the whole nine yards. We had just got, you know, three, four, 
four four checks into my new job and we put a down payment for a house and a whole different world, you know, than what I'd been living the last so many years. And uh, so April comes around, Sean says training is going to be from, from, uh, from nine to 12 in the morning. So at that time I was working from, I was working from 12 noon to, uh, midnight. And so I just left train a little early or, or work, went to work a little later or something. Um, and during this time I had been passed up on promotions and stuff and raises, not because of attendance or behavior, but the one that, that killed me the most was I got hired the same day as another guy at the warehouse and he got a raise because his uncle was, mm. you know, in another department stuff. And, and one of the guys explained to me, well, the reason why he got a raise is because his uncle is in the meat department and and I'm like son of a bitch. So now we're playing politics at, and I left the politics stuff mm. in the wrestling. Now I'm back into politics frying pan again. So that didn't sit well with, with me. That you know. And then at the end of the day I wasn't happy. I wasn't I mean, yes, I had a regular job, I was making good money and you know, I was getting things and doing things I wasn't doing the last fifteen years, sixteen years or so. And it was a different life, but I just wasn't happy. Mm-hmm. And so uh, when the school was going, started getting going, I just, one day I just quit going to work. I just, just quit going to work. And then uh, my kid's mom was like, are you on vacation or something? After after a couple of weeks, she's like, are you on vacation or something? And I'm like, uh, no, why? She goes, you haven't gone to work in you know, a week and a half or so. And um, I'm like, remember I told you that time that I talked to Shawn Michaels about a wrestling school and stuff? And she said, yes. And um, I said, I'm working for Shawn full-time now. And she goes, okay, how much how much is he paying you? And um, I said, two fifty a week. And, man, the shit hit the fan. I mean, I was, with the warehouse, I was making eight, nine, a thousand dollars every week and stuff. And with Sean, I was I went I was making two fifty, but I was smart enough that I saved my money and stuff. So, you know, I let her blow off all her steam and what have you. And um, and she said, "Why did you do this to us? You're gonna put us. We're gonna be out on the street. We're gonna do this." And I'm like, "Look, I wasn't happy. I was not happy. And you know, something will come out of this. I'm sure. I didn't know that. I didn't. I didn't know. But I was just. I was hoping. Mm. And." Um, so we were on some rocky grounds there for a while for, and, and, and then, so, um, not even a month after Sean started the school, he fired Jose. They had a, they had a, they were bumping heads about something and, uh, he fired Jose. So now it's me and it was me, Jose Lothario and Ken Johnson and Sean hired Jose and then Jose and Ken were buddies. So Jose said, well, you know, since you're bringing me, can you also bring in Ken? And so Sean hired Ken. And and back in the old days, Sean paid Jose to train him. But Jose had Ken Johnson get in the ring and do all the the physical stuff. So there was that connection. So um, Jose, I mean, Sean didn't want to fire Jose, but they they, they had a fallout. and And so Jose left. And then it was just me and Ken. And then Jose and Ken had a fallout. I think it's had something. It might have a little bit to do with 
Sean Jose, but Ken and Sean had a fallout, and then Ken left. And one of the things that he that he said when he left was, "Are you coming with me?" And I said, "No." And so he's like, "All right, well, he left." And then Sean looked at me, and goes, "Do you want to go with him?" I said, "We're in the middle of training." I said, "Stop." So I pulled Sean to the side. I said, "You hired Ken and Jose." together as a as a as a package i'm not part of that package so if you want me gone say so otherwise i'm not leaving so sean said all right it's me and you i said okay he brought in paul diamond for a little while to help but paul's main job was to book towns and stuff but paul would show up to the gym and help out with training and stuff as well but it was mainly just it was just sean sat outside the ring and i was doing all the stuff in the ring and then um in January of 90, I'm sorry, January of 2001, Sean walked in. He said, um, I resigned my deal with Vince. And I'm like, okay. He goes, so I'm going to shut the school down. And I'm like, uh, why? He said, I can't run the school and work full time for, for WWF or WWE, whatever it's called at that time. So I'm gonna have to shut the school down, unless you want it. And I was like, um, "What I got to pay you for it?" He says, "Nothing." He goes, "Your loyalty has been more than enough." Hmm. And I said, "All right." And that was it. I took over from there. That was. I mean, he 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 was he just signed a new group of kids, so he was committed to those kids from January till the end of March. Because the groups were three month sessions, so uh, March came around. He told the guys, "Hey, I'm done. Good luck to you guys." And then April, um, April 9th of two thousand one, got the keys. And that's it. Uh, I, I keep in contact with them um, every chance I get. I tell them thank you again, again. More than grateful for the opportunity he gave me. Um, I was around a lot of good kids, still am. Um, I got the chance to train some good, good boys that have gone on to bigger and better things. Uh, I see them on TV, and I'm more than proud of them. Um, and they reach out to me, hey coach, hey Rudy, how you been? How, you know, you know. Uh, out of nowhere, I had no idea until someone sent me the clip. But out of nowhere, um, last year. Maybe it's yeah. Last year, I think um, Brian AEW did a show here in San Antonio, and um, for whatever reason, Brian mentioned my you know you know I, I was trained here by Rudy Gonzalez, Shawn Michaels on TV, on their TV, and why did he do that? I have no idea. Appreciation, I don't know, but that meant so much to me because again, he didn't have to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, uh, I keep in contact with Brian Kendrick and Paul London. For whatever reason, they're bumping heads also. And I love both boys. And I, I've tried to, you know, why don't you and Paul sit down? Or why don't you and Brian sit down? And they won't do it. And it's like a dad and, and his two sons fighting about whatever. Whatever it is that's fighting about. I have no idea. And I'm not going to side with one. I'm not going to side with the other. I'm not, I haven't even asked them what's going on. I just, I've just told them both, maybe you guys need to sit down and talk, you know, ah, you know, this guy, F him, F that, whatever. 
and uh, it, it it hurts me, it bothers me, but it's wrestling, man. And it's mm. you know, mm. it's real life. Well, Rudy, this has been a fascinating discussion. But before we wrap it up, can you let the fans know where they can follow you on social media and keep up with everything happening in the Texas Wrestling Academy? Sure, you can follow me on um, Facebook. Mainly is where I'm at. I have Instagram also. Uh, Facebook is Texas Wrestling Academy. Um, there's also our promotion, Texas Wrestling Entertainment, on Facebook and uh, on Instagram. Uh, the uh, the promotion is Texas Wrestling. Um, with the wrestling school, I mean, I just I've gone three times to the performance center. So what I do is I try and bring what I learn over there here and uh, prepare guys better that so if they ever get the chance to to do tryouts or whatever they'll kind of know what to expect uh we just moved into a new facility um we train monday through friday seven to nine and i just we put everything out there i mean let's see if i do this so um yeah so there's our ring and i mean you know we're gonna start doing events here uh once a week for the so that the kids one of the biggest obstacles kids have when they come out of wrestling school is they have no experience so we're going to allow kids come in here, do matches, do shows. I'll have, I'll bring a, a crowd in here. You know, so I can only hold about 50 people, but that's more than enough to get experience working for crowd stuff. Um, that's, and that's really it. I mean, I, I try, I'm still trying to get guys out there. Um, there's more opportunity than there is today, but there's also not as much opportunity. You just got to, you know, where to go, who to talk to, and that type of stuff. Anything I can help with guys with, I have guys that I haven't even trained that message me and ask me to look at video or critique their matches or what do I need to do about this? Or how do I get my name out? You know, I'm, you know, I'm open to everybody. Well, it sounds like you've got an exciting uh, operation down there. We'll, we'll keep in touch and uh, please keep us advised as to any developments with the school. And we'd, we'd love to have you back again. Fantastic storyteller. I want to thank you sincerely for your time tonight. Thank you, Jack. I really, 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 really appreciate you giving me the opportunity. And anytime, just let me know and we'll get we'll do this again. Excellent. Well, fans, that's it for another edition of the GP Productions Wrestling Podcast. If you haven't already, please hit the subscribe button and the like button, and you will keep up to date with all the exciting content like this that we have coming in 2024. Until then, take care, everybody.